This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Fifty years ago this week, a burglary in Washington, D.C. office building changed history, though it took a while to do so. Through a series of twists and turns, an oddball episode morphed over two years into the only resignation of a president in U.S. history. To this day, many events surrounding the crime remain incompletely understood. Ask someone about Watergate, and they'll likely say that Richard Nixon got caught ordering a break-in, then he and his staffers got called out for it, as Nixon was held accountable by a vigilant press. Our guest today has researched the matter to conclude that the All the President's Men narrative, while not inaccurate, represents but a small part of a larger and far more fascinating picture. The burglars were White House assets, but six of the seven arrestees had affiliations with the Central Intelligence Agency, then headed by Director Richard Helms. Both Richards, Nixon and Helms, worked to keep their affair contained. That turned out badly for both. Nixon resigned, Helms got convicted of lying to Congress. A still lingering question is, what did both men want so badly to keep hidden? Journalist Jefferson Morley has made an in-depth exploration of the CIA's misrepresentations and mischief over the years. Jeff Morley's gone to court to try and force the CIA to uncover files related to the JFK assassination. Those files were supposed to be released by now, yet they remain hidden from public view. Mr. Morley has previously examined Wynne Scott, a shadowy figure in the agency's Mexico City station in the 1960s, and the bizarre case of CIA counterintelligence chief James Angleton, whose futile hunt for a Soviet mole became legendary. The latest result of his extensive researches is Scorpion's Dance, The President, the Spymaster, and Watergate. This work provides a fresh perspective on the scandal that was Watergate. It fills in gaps in the story and provides background information that is sure to surprise the reader, no matter how well-versed in the subject he or she might be. Former Senator Gary Hart observed that Scorpion's Dance reveals a number of, quote, unexploded hand grenades previously undiscovered, unquote. We agree, and we're keen to talk about some of these revelations. And to do so, we're delighted that we're in a position to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Jefferson Morley. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. Well, Jeff, you start the book with Richard Helms's Senate Watergate Committee testimony. Helms told the committee and the world that the CIA had nothing to do with Watergate. But the five burglars and the man supervising the break-in, Howard Hunt, were all agency connected. So Dick Helms stating the CIA had, quote, no involvement, unquote, was not quite true. Can we start with that? Yeah, this was the cover story that Helms offered during the televised Watergate hearings in the summer of 1973, the agency, after the burglary in 1972, had put out the line that while the burglars had formerly been employed by the CIA, some of them, the CIA had had no contact with them since their retirement in 1970. That was not true. Helms reiterated that cover story in his testimony to the Watergate Committee in 1973, and that was not true. What was behind that was a much deeper involvement with the CIA and the burglars. And so the initial impression uh, of the scandal was, like you said at the top of the hour, uh, you know, that President Richard Nixon had these burglars and they got caught. 
And that's really not true. With the, with the benefit of hindsight and a lot of declassified information, I show in Scorpion's Dance that, in fact, the burglars were a joint CIA-White House enterprise directed by the White House, perhaps, but with all of the intelligence gathered flowing not just to the White House, but also back to the CIA. So, you know, one of the things that I show in the book is that both Howard Hunt, the burglar-in-chief, and James McCord, the second most important burglar, were passing the information they obtained through their work for the White House back to the CIA and, indeed, back to Helms himself. So that's really what this book is about, is the hidden hand of the CIA in the burglary, which was not apparent at the time that the scandal took place, not apparent when the Washington Post and Congress were investigating, but is now very well documented. There's nothing theoretical about this. Uh, this record is pretty much indisputable, uh, you will see in the, in the course of the book. There's ample documentation of the, of the things that I discussed. Well, Helms was believed largely back in 1972, and judging by what some people are saying now, historians and journalists, uh, to a degree, he is apparently still believed. I know you took part in a recent conference that had a lot of focus on the Nixon White House, John Mitchell and the like, and there's TV specials out now. Obviously, there's culpability there, but are you surprised at how well the, the CIA misdeeds and the background to all of this, their, their involvement, has really been obscured? Well, you know, you have to understand the kind of cultural and media deference that the CIA enjoyed in 1972. Um, that would change in the years to follow as uh, various CIA abuses of power were revealed, both during the Watergate scandal and subsequently by the uh, investigation of the Church Committee in 1975. But before the revelations of Watergate and the Church Committee, Reporters in Washington and editors in Washington really didn't question the CIA uh, and the CIA's account of things. So when the CIA put out in the immediate aftermath of the burglary that they didn't have anything to do with the burglars, the press believed them, including Woodward and Bernstein, who knew of the burglars' association with the CIA, but did not really pursue it. And so they missed the story that I tell in Scorpion's Dance. So, for example, they missed the story that Howard Hunt, the burglar-in-chief, was in fact pretty close personal friends with Richard Helms. Uh, in his Senate Watergate uh, testimony, Helms pretended like he barely knew the man, but in fact they had been friends since 1957. They went to lunch frequently. They traded personal and professional confidences. When Helms got in trouble in his work, which he frequently did, Helms rescued him. In 1966, Helms gave Hunt a paid sabbatical to write spy novels because Helms hoped that they would glamorize the CIA in the same way that Ian Fleming had glamorized the British Secret Service in his James Bond novels. Hunt was a spy novelist in his spare time. So this very close friendship between Hunt and Helms, which continues throughout uh, Hunt's career and continues after Hunt retires from the CIA and goes to work for the White House. And in fact, we now, uh, I found the, the White House tape where we have Bob Haldeman actually recommending Howard Hunt to Richard Nixon personally, face to face, 
a year before the burglary. So it was without without Helms and without Hunt, Nixon never would have had his burglary. So I see the the role of the of the CIA in the Watergate affair as foundational. And and really, what you know, this book is an original take on Watergate because it does something no other book has done. Most books look at Watergate as a chapter in the history of the Nixon presidency. I look at Scorpion Dance looks at Watergate as a chapter in the history of the CIA. And when it is viewed from that angle, the scandal looks very different. The CIA involvement becomes much more significant and apparent. Let's take a deep dive off the high dive into, into E. Howard Hunt, uh, which, you've, which you've already started. He, he was obviously well-known to Helms. When, when Nixon's listening to the tape, the tape, I guess, of June 23rd, that he's later basically thrown out of office for, because it's clear he's, he's demanding obstruction of justice in, in that tape, which was denied for so long. But in the tape, he's saying, this is Hunt, this is bad, that will open up a whole scab. And he asked Bob Haldeman, and the chief of staff, to go over to the CIA and to tell Richard Helms this could open up the whole Bay of Pigs thing, which is a really important part of your book. Helms explodes when he hears that, and that key phrase is, is just, you know, still resonating. Can we talk about that? Yeah, so you're talking about what was known as the smoking gun tape. Yes. This was a tape of conversations between Nixon and his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, on June 23rd, 1972, six days after the burglary. Nixon, at this point, is panicked because he feels that the investigation of the burglars is going to reveal their ties back to the White House. So he calls in Haldeman, and he tells Haldeman to, to meet with Helms and to tell him that he needs to tell the FBI to stop the investigation, to just limit the investigation to the five people who had been arrested and not to expand it any further. Remember, at this point, Helms and Gordon Liddy are fugitives. They were not actually part of the burglary team. They were watching from a command post in a motel across the street. So they are fugitives at this time, and Nixon is looking to do damage control, and that's why he calls in Haldeman and wants Helms' assistant. So when Nixon says, you know, tell him that this is going to open up the, the whole Bay of Pigs thing, Haldeman was a little puzzled, but he delivered that threat. As you noted, the threat made Helms very angry. And in my book, I explain why. Because it was, as Haldeman later said, a direct reference to the assassination of President Kennedy. Now, how did this work? Why was Nixon using coded language about JFK's assassination? What I show in Scorpion's Dance is that this really originated in a conversation between Helms and Nixon that took place eight months before, in October 1971. From the start of his administration, Nixon had always been intrigued and sought the CIA's secret reporting on the Bay of Pigs operation. The Bay of Pigs operation was an unsuccessful CIA operation to overthrow Fidel Castro with an, uh, a CIA-trained invasion force. That invasion force was smashed as they arrived on the beaches of, at the Bay of Pigs in Cuba in April 1961 handing the CIA its most humiliating defeat in its 14 years of existence, and handing a tremendous victory to Fidel Castro, the new leader of Cuba. 
10 years later, when Nixon assumes the, the, the office as his president, he immediately sends John Ehrlichman, his closest domestic policy advisor, to go meet with Helms and to ask him for the CIA's secret reporting on the Bay of Pigs operation. Ehrlichman goes to the CIA and has a conversation with Helms, who's a nice fellow and promises to cooperate, and ne never gives Ehrlichman anything. Uh, Ehrlichman would inevitably return empty-handed. And this happened several times in 1969, 1970, 1971. In September 1971, Ehrlichman comes back on another failed mission, and he tells Nixon, look, Helms just won't give me this stuff. He says it's too sensitive. It's dirty linen, in, in Helms' phrase. Ehrlichman reports to Nixon that Helms says he will only give this information to Nixon personally. So Nixon invites Helms to the Oval Office, and they have a very tense conversation in which Nixon demands this material. And he explains, and we have the tape of the conversation, he explains to Helms why he wants it. He says he wants it for negotiation. That's a little vague, and Helms doesn't re really respond. Nixon keeps explaining, why does he want this? Nixon says, well, you know, there's the dirty tricks part of it. Nixon's phrase, the dirty tricks part of it. And he, and he tells Helms, I approve of what you guys did in Guatemala, where the CIA overthrew a government in 1954. I approve of what you did in Iran, where the CIA overthrew a government in 1953. I approve of what you did at the Bay of Pigs. You guys had a good plan. It was just that Kennedy screwed it up. This is what he's interested in. And then Nixon utters this phrase, and you can hear it quite clearly on the tape, when Helms is asking to know why he wants this material. And Nixon says, the who shot John Engel. The who shot John Engel is what Nixon was interested in. In the context of a demand for records about CIA operations in the early 1960s, that can only refer to one thing, the assassination of President Kennedy. And the question of who was responsible was a very live question in 1971 in Washington. In January of that year, Jesse Curry, the Dallas police chief, had come out with a book saying he thought that there was a conspiracy. That was front page news in the New York Times. Jack Anderson had a explosive column in the Washington Post in January 1970, reporting for the first time in detail on the CIA's efforts to assassinate Fidel Castro starting in 1960, something that both Nixon and Helms knew all about. And this was the secret that they had to keep between the two of them, the CIA's efforts to kill Castro and the possible connection to JFK's assassination. So, when Nixon says in the smoking gun tape to Haldeman, tell Helms that this could open up the whole Bay of Pigs thing, Helms fully understood exactly what Nixon was talking about. He was saying, get on board or else something could come out that would damage your agency or connect your agency to the assassination of President Kennedy. That was, on Nixon's part, a very nasty threat. He was basically, you know, blackmailing him or kind of in a friendly way saying, help me and I'll help you, you know, avoid a disaster of your agency being connected with the Kennedy assassination. It's no wonder Helms exploded in anger because it was, a, it, he was playing very rough as Nixon was wont to do. So one thing that I explain in Scorpion's Dance, one thing that's going on at the same time that Nixon and Helms are trying to manage 
the, the arrest of the burglars, is the politics of assassination. Utterly unknown to the American people, but a piece of live business between the president and his intelligence chief. And so the politics of assassination are very important for both men because containing the scandal is also a way of keeping the assassination policies of the, of the CIA secret, which was very important to both men. That's what that phrase means. And so I show in Scorpion's Dance that Bob Haldeman was right when he said that the whole Bay of Pigs thing was Nixon's coded reference to JFK's assassination. It is very clear from that tape that when Nixon was pressing Helms for information about the Bay of Pigs, he had the assassination of JFK on his mind. I might add, I'll tell you one little detail from the book, too, which is at that time, in 1971, Johnny Rosselli, one of the mafia figures who the CIA had enlisted in the assassination plots in 1960, Rosselli threatened to blackmail the CIA, and he threatened to go public with what he had done for the CIA. He was being investigated on an unrelated criminal charges, and he let it be known to the CIA that he was going to talk about his service to the U.S. government. That threat worked. The CIA and the Nixon White House agreed that Johnny Rosselli did not have to testify before the grand jury, that he could tell his story about the investigation that he was under to prosecutors in Washington, and he did not have to talk about, and indeed could not talk about, his service to the U.S. government in the assassination plot. So the mafia boss, Johnny Rosselli, was able to blackmail the CIA that year, in 1971, in order to lessen his criminal exposure. And in fact, we now have the, the memos in which the CIA goes to the Immigration and Naturalization Service and says, you know, please do not deport Mr. Rosselli. We don't want him deported. The CIA kept up their end of the bargain, and so did Rosselli. He never talked about the assassination plots to the grand jury, and the CIA made sure that he wasn't deported. That's one example of how the politics of assassination influenced what was going on in the Watergate era. I want to note that Roselli uh, was sort of, I, I guess, near the start of these theories that were circulated that they tried to kill Castro, they didn't get him, and he turned around, and that's what led to the JFK assassination. I know in some of your other works, you and others have noted that the very first so-called conspiracy theory in the JFK case was that Castro did it, and that came from an organization that was, well, what a surprise, funded by the CIA. Right. Now, Selly told the story to, through his lawyer to Jack Anderson, and that became the basis for that column that Jack Anderson wrote about the Castro assassination plot, which was from the point of view of the CIA, dangerously accurate. Anderson reported that there had been six plots against Castro and that these plots were recounted in a secret CIA document. And that was true. There was a 1967 CIA Inspector General's report on the Castro assassination plots, which identified six separate plots, one of which was being run by Dick Helms on the day President Kennedy was assassinated. Now, Rosselli didn't have any evidence that his story was true, that they had tried to assassinate Castro. Castro had intercepted the assassins and, that in retaliation, had orchestrated the assassination of JFK. There's no evidence that that last part actually was true, but that's what Rosselli said, and it, it had the effect of heightening the blackmail, of heightening the pressure on the CIA, because it would be one thing 
if Rosselli revealed that the CIA was plotting to kill Castro, he was an enemy of the United States. That might not have been that unpopular to have revealed. But to put in the, the, the extra detail that those plots might have led to the assassination in Dallas in 1963, that was a whole other order of business. And that's why Rosselli's blackmail was effective. Dick Helms and the CIA could not afford to have anything like that in the public press. It was bad enough that Rosselli had said it. If he was going to repeat it to a federal grand jury, that would have been a public relations nightmare for the agency, and it might have cost Dick Helms his job. So Nixon really, in 1971, comes to Helms's rescue and makes sure that the Rosselli story about the Castro plots doesn't get out. The next year, when Nixon is the one with the problem, that's when he goes and says to Haldeman, tell him this is going to blow up the whole bad pigs thing. Nixon wants the favor returned. He wants Helms' help now. He helped Helms the year before. Now he wants the spy chief to get on board and please kill this FBI investigation of the Watergate burglary. So that's how the politics of assassination affect the relationship of these two supremely powerful men. A great strength of your book, Jeff, is how you, you cite public statements and, and or testimonies that were given and detail how they're partly or, or completely false. And one example you just you're, you're talking about here is this um, the plot against Castro. It's been claimed by Helms. Oh, those were, those were not assassination attempts. And he's always maintained that Rolando Cobela he was never enlisted to kill Castro. But but you found a 94 year old organizer of the operations, Carl Jenkins, and I compliment you for finding him and getting him to talk to you. Who said, of course they were murder plots. Yeah, Helms was a very convincing character. Richard Benvenisti, one of the Watergate prosecutors who interviewed him several times, told me, he said, Richard Helms was very good at getting you to see things the way you wanted to see them. He was just a very convincing, impressive man, even when he was telling startling and appalling lies. <laughs> <laughs> and so this question that, that, that he had out there, or this statement that he had that that the so-called AMLASH operation, and that was the code name for the man you mentioned, Rolando Cubella, a Cuban government official who was recruited to assassinate Castro. Helms's denials that the AMLASH operation was an assassination operation struck me as a classic example of one of his cover stories. And when I found Carl Jenkins, I was very interested in him because he had participated in that plot at, at the ground level. He was a military trainer, and when they needed a weapon, Cubella wanted a long-range rifle. Jenkins was the guy who knew the guns and all of that, and he, he was the one who got the rifle and arranged for it to be transmitted to Cubella um, in Cuba. And so that was kind of the final nail in the coffin of Helms' cover story when the guy who actually had the gun said, yes, this was an assassination plot. So that's one of the highlights of the book, I think, and, and gives readers a feel for just how well-documented this story is. I'm not, I'm not relying on somebody else's account. Carl Jenkins had never talked to anybody about this stuff before, and he told me about it in detail. Wow. That's, that's some good reporting, sir. The Scorpion's Dance, it, it, it details a lot of these dirty tricks that, that are now well-known, uh, and they were, sort of course, well-hidden back in 1972, although I think people knew these Mission Impossible-type operations were, were actually pretty routine. It was said at the time that if Richard Helms would be pushed, every tree in the forest might fall. 
followed by the Rockefeller Commission, Church Committee, uh, an investigation in the Senate. We, we now know what a lot of those trees were. Really, we have Watergate to thank for that. The Watergate scandal, the arrest of the burglars, the investigation of the ties to the White House, leads to the CIA within a year or so when it's revealed that the CIA had supported Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy in breaking into the office of the psychiatrist of Daniel Ellsberg, the man who had leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times in 1971. And so the focus, the first year of Watergate, on abuses of power by the White House grows into uh, an examination of abuses of power by the CIA. And after Nixon resigns, in 1974, uh, it's revealed that the CIA has been spying on Americans, written by Seymour Hersh in the New York Times, about these illicit surveillance programs run by James Angleton, the chief of counterintelligence. Those revelations lead to the formation of the Church Committee and a much deeper investigation of the CIA in 1975 by the Church Committee, which goes far beyond the Watergate affair into all sorts of abuses of power by the CIA in its first 25 years of existence. The plots to kill foreign leaders, the mind control experiments using LSD on unwitting subjects, the surveillance of Americans, the spying on the anti-war movement. So all of these things come out and the CIA faces real its first real reckoning in 25 years of existence. And in fact, has to really change the way it does business. Uh, in 1970, after the Church Committee hearings, Congress creates the House and Senate Intelligence Oversight Committees, so the CIA has to report directly to Congress on its covert operations, something it never had to do before. In the wake of Watergate and the Church Committee, the CIA's budget is cut. People are fired. That had never happened in the first 25 years of the agency. So. The Watergate scandal and the Senate investigation that follows really have a very profound impact on the CIA and change the way some of its basic, basically the way it functions within the U.S. government. So a, a major, major development in the history of the agency. But sadly, you note in the book how these efforts to rein in the CIA worked for quite a while in the wake of Watergate that the national security state has made something of a comeback. While the CIA had this tremendous impunity in its first 25 years, and that caused it lots of problems and created these scandals, when the CIA began operating under this new regime with more congressional oversight, it actually strengthened the CIA in the long run because it distributed responsibility for these very sensitive matters. It was not just restricted to top agency officials, but then if, 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 if congressional leaders were also witting of these operations, then they too were responsible for them. And so responsibility was spread around, and um, the CIA was, there was less finger pointing at the CIA, and the CIA was actually able to continue doing what it was doing and regained some of its impunity. And so the congressional oversight system does not prevent the Iran-Contra scandal, in which CIA officers conspire with the Reagan White House to bypass Congress and provide aid to counter-revolutionaries in Central America. It doesn't prevent the imposition of an illegal and ineffective torture regime after 9-11, which also caused the CIA immense grief when it was exposed. So 
you know, the oversight system actually designed to hold the CIA accountable also provided a measure of, of, of protection for the agency in the decades that followed. I want to close today with some stuff that may be more of interest to younger listeners who are maybe wondering why we're still talking so much about what happened 50 years ago. It took a while for Watergate to bring about Nixon's resignation and Helms's conviction. Uh, I was once lucky enough to interview Senator George McGovern, and I mentioned to him that I had a San Francisco Chronicle from August of 72, quoting his assertion that dirty tricks were being played, but the reporters seemed rather skeptical about it. But after the fall election and the trial of the burglars, we saw televised hearings and legal actions commencing against Nixon. Is the lesson in this that these things are just slow, methodical processes? And I'm thinking of indictments of Donald Trump when I say that. Do we need months of media focus for something to actually bear fruit? I think we do, because uh, these are complex matters that have been buried very deeply under layers of official secrecy and complete mendacity on the part of the people there. And to, for people to really understand them, especially at the level of people who are not closely involved in the news, but at a more general level, people who are voters, you do need that public education component. And the Watergate hearings 50 years ago and the January 6th hearings now serve that function. So I think that they are important. One difference that we see now is, and I wonder about this, is you know, at the time, the Watergate prosecutors started at the bottom of the conspiracy and worked their way up. There's a lot of questions now. Is the Justice Department going to indict former President Trump for his role in the January 6th insurrection, especially as the evidence of his involvement becomes more clear through the hearing? I wonder, though, why they don't try the Watergate approach of indicting the lower-ranking people and working their way up, not trying to decide the question of, uh, charging a president with criminal charges, which is a very, very serious matter. We don't want our one president to arrest his successor. You know, that's a dangerous precedent that we've seen in other countries. You only want to do that if the, if the evidence is overwhelming and compelling. But as in Watergate, you know, by developing cases against the lower level people involved, the responsibility of the, pre of the president, you know, ultimately became clear. So, I'm sort of hoping that these that the prosecutors who are considering the case do not indict President Trump first, but rather indict the lower level people in order to make clear the higher level of presidential responsibility. Trump didn't get involved in illegal adventurism around the world like they did back in the 50s through 70s, but those guys never tried to throw over, overthrow the electoral process. Right. I mean, people say, what's the difference between Watergate and, and, and today, in, in both cases, you have this sense of a very divided country. You have a sense of the very future of the country is at risk. The feeling that we have of that today was very much in the air in 1972 and 73. Where was this going? But one difference was Nixon, for all of his deviousness, he actually had a, a conscience. For all the illegal things that he did, he, he had a conscience. He, didn't, he did not want to be seen as a lawbreaker, even if he was one, whereas former President Trump doesn't care if he's seen as a lawbreaker. So that's a difference that we have today. Jeff, can you give us some advance notes of what else you might be working on? Because we hope to bring you back whenever you're finished with it. <laughs> well, uh, I continue to work on the Kennedy assassination. We have a lot of government documents that still contain redactions. 
and President Biden has sent a deadline for December of this year for release of those records. We'll see, you know, if that happens and if it does happen, if there's significant material in there. So that's probably the the story I'm going to be working on through the end of the year. I don't have another book plan, but I will keep my focus on the JFK story. It never goes away. Well, we want to plug your, your, your website, JFK Facts. It is a wonderful repository of accurate information about, uh, about the assassination and more. Our guest has been Jefferson Morley, author, investigator, journalist, and I dare say a genuine seeker of truth. His new book, Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate is out and offers the reader a fresh and insightful look at history. I found it riveting. Total page turner. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I, I want to stress to listeners, however, that... Because Scorpion's Dance is so rich in detail, our half-hour chat today really can't do it justice. Listeners are going to need to get a copy for themselves to fully appreciate what is there. And if I could add one, one more thing, Doug, for people who like audiobooks, there is a good audiobook version of Scorpion's Dance available through Macmillan Audio, and there's also, a, also available in a Kindle ebook form. So depending on how you like to consume your books, there's a format available in Scorpion's Dance. Excellent. Jefferson Morley, please keep up with, you, with your work. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me, Doug. All right, must take a short break. Let, let's do that. Before I go, I just want to add that it's just such a pleasure to speak to an investigative journalist of that caliber, Jeff Morley. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. Mm-hmm. 